Hey friend, this podcast is brought to you by Yes Collective, a coach-guided, therapist-designed, and science-backed mental health platform just for parents. Join us at yescollective.co. How do we get back to a good place after we've had a difference, a snag, a silence, after we've had some kind of conflict? And that's the work. And couples who do that well and families who do that well create security in the system. And you're actually becoming not only stronger together, you're becoming more resilient. And it's actually safer because you're saying, yeah, that stuff that's kind of negative and uncomfortable, that's welcome here too. That's actually part of being a family. That's part of being a married couple is this uncomfortable stuff between us that doesn't always feel good. It's what are you going to do after to make sure that person feels safe again with you? Jason Gaddis is founder of The Relationship School, a relationship coach, a trainer of relationship coaches, and an author. He's helped thousands of couples work through some of their toughest issues and build deep and fulfilling lifelong relationships. I'd heard about Jason in The Relationship School a few times over the last year, was super excited to read his new book, Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High Stakes Relationships. It's absolutely packed with strategies, tips, and practices that can help anyone repair relationships and achieve deep connection after conflict. If you have a high-stakes relationship in your life, whether it's your marriage, with your kids, at work, or a friendship, then you'll absolutely want to tune in. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the wise and amazing Jason Gaddis. Yeah, Jason. So thank you so much for coming on the Family Thrive podcast. Uh, I have heard about you from different people over the past year as I've gotten to learn a little bit more about relationships. Uh, We might talk about authentic relating later. I discovered that about a year and a half ago. And so okay. Started to learn more about relationships, and then uh, yeah, we heard we heard about you. We heard about the relationship school, and then getting to zero just came out, and uh, I've loved it. And so I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. Yeah. So my first question is, Jason, were you always good at relationships? Is this is this just like a natural skill? You just were always connecting and. <laughs> repairing no. <laughs> no. no man uh it was the opposite of the of, quote good at relationships what i did get good at was and it took me till probably high school and actually more importantly college when i got good socially but that doesn't mean anything it just means that i got good at like playing the game of mm. getting people to like me so that's not necessarily someone who's good at relationships, right? Yeah, but I before that and 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 then after that, I, I just was really sensitive and emotional on the inside, but wore a mask and a you know just a facade basically that said, yeah, I, I'll do whatever I can to fit in and be liked and make friends because I had so many negative you know bullying experiences, getting excluded, girls not liking me, and you know that just so many challenges relationally, and then in a family where an awesome family, but they didn't value like these subtler parts of relationship where we can really acknowledge someone, where we can see them, where we can slow down. And and if we hurt their feelings, we can like clean it up and make it better again like that. None of that was going on. 
None of that. I heard you say you were good at getting people to like you. I imagine that there's probably a common assumption that that is what relationships are are about. Like if I can just get this other person to like (laughs) me, then (laughs) I'm good at relationships. So what's wrong with, with that view? Yeah, well, it's the, I think that operating, fueling that kind of approach is usually insecurity, self-doubt, scarcity, um, not feeling like enough and not, and having the experience of enough experiences where you feel rejected, abandoned, ignored, whatever, that you feel like you have to be someone else to get relationship or to belong. This is a really common pattern that I think most everybody falls in, especially growing up in your family and in your peer culture is if our true self comes out, sometimes we get squashed and we get made fun of or hurt or people look the other way. And so that only has to happen really once or twice for us to kind of go, okay, cool. I'm not going to do that again. Oh yeah. And I'm going to instead do whatever will, whatever socially favorable behaviors get me belonging. And I call this difference is just the difference between our true self and our strategic self. And this actually creates an inner conflict that most of us deal with our whole life. So the strategic self is figuring out how can I make this situation easy? How can I be accepted? How can I achieve attachment? And then the true self, now that you mentioned it, what is that? Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of who we are when um, we feel most alive and free in ourselves. And it's also... Um, maybe who we are when we feel most ashamed because it's, you know, to, to risk being authentic, I think in our, our peer group growing up, especially our family, you know, the risks were high. Like one of the, one of our biggest fears is that we're going to be left or dropped or totally rejected and outcast. And for so, social mammals like us, that's not good. It's not good for our health and well-being. Yeah. You know, so our true self is like who we are, like deep down inside that hopefully when you find an awesome family or an awesome partner, and great close friends, you get to come out like and really be yourself. Mm. So that's what a real relationship is when you can be authentic and also in connection at the same time. Yeah. And even if you're trying, what's funny is people get married like really naively thinking it's just going to all work out and <laughs> they don't, they don't understand the gravity of the situation that really, if they've been in a strategy their whole life and now they get married, um, as soon as the honeymoon stage wears off, their true self can't help but emerge. And a lot of their true self is kind of messy. It's quote, quote ugly. It's uh, uncomfortable. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's, you know, the part of us that leaves our socks on the floor that doesn't clean up after ourselves or that is very OCD and controlling and, you know, super hypervigilant. It's whatever we are. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to hide in a marriage. It's hard to hide in a family. And, I think that's good news because it brings all the truth out so that we can love and learn to love. Oh, yeah. So it's like the way I, I'm imagining it here is, you know, before marriage, we can avoid a lot of our stuff. We can just find yeah. find ways to move through life. And then in marriage, now we're kind of confronted with this, like, okay, I yeah, I have a true self and, and then this strategic self and, and um, how can I be my true self while also in relationship with this other person, that's going to trigger a lot. That's going to bring up a lot. And then you add kids into the mix. And I imagine there's a whole nother <laughs> level of complexity and triggering yeah. and, and oh, stuff yeah. that you can no longer avoid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got it. 
Yeah, speak yeah. spoken like a parent here. Is, um, <laughs> yeah, another view here, kind of the more spiritual type view, is is that our kids represent our disowned parts, parts of mm. ourselves that we haven't loved. And so your kids are go- are going to trigger you a lot, and as is your partner. And that's not a problem if you have a growth mindset. If you don't, and you just kind of are hoping for a copacetic, quote, happy, normal, peaceful situation, you're going to be up shit creek because it's just not it's just not how it works. Well, it's the it, yeah, it's the desire for the happy copacetic uh, situation. But then you know we 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 just moved this last year from Orange County, California, uh, to Savannah. But in Orange County, there were. I, f- I felt like there were a lot of uh, hard charging A type families <laughs> where the kids were kind of groomed to be this this perfect v- representation of what the parent wants wants to be yeah. seen as, and so yep. it's not just happy and copacetic, but can I get my child to perform <laughs> in such a way yeah, as, you're as right. to yeah. reflect on me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You nailed it. I mean, that's the other the other big thing of parenting is. Um, how many parents are basically just trying to put their values on their kids. And of course, we're all, all parents are going to instill, try to instill, quote, good values into our kids because we want them to grow up to be good people and, you know, contributing members of society. But I think in that type of culture you're talking about, and here in Boulder, Colorado, it's very similar where there's a lot of hard chargers people just in general just want to go for it. And, and they're very image focused. They're very status focused. So if their kid's not kind of winning and getting A's and Ivy doing League. all the things, then it, it looks bad <laughs> on them, right? Yeah, it's exactly. a, it reflects negatively on them. And I, I worked with a lot of these families in residential treatment many years ago. Mm. Um, it's it's a mess. Oh wow, yeah, right, right, and and so they're also coming up against some disowned parts and. Uh, oh yeah, what's yeah, happening? And not there looking well. at them. And, yeah, 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 exactly. I want to talk more about the stuff. This is this is the stuff that I love to really get into. But I I guess I want to spend uh, the time that we have really digging into conflict. So I got yeah. your book uh, a month or two ago, and I've absolutely loved it. It's called Getting to Zero. One of the, f- the first things that popped out to me is you wrote the crux of a good, strong, long lasting relationship is not the absence of conflict but the ability and willingness to work through it. And so uh, what came up first is like, okay, is it possible to have a, a deep relationship or like a, a long-term uh, relationship like a marriage without conflict? Like, is there some, some golden land over the next hill where <laughs> our relationships won't have any conflict or is it inevitable? Yeah, I think it's inevitable and... My parents did a pretty good job of, you know, they have conflict, but they would say that they don't have conflict. And I grew up thinking, oh, my parents don't fight. Mm, And all they were doing was putting it on the shelf and compartmentalizing it. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, having a glass of wine and going to bed and hoping it was better the next day. (laughs) So a lot of people operate like that. Right. And, and that's okay. That's, that's certainly one way to do it, but you're not going to have a very deep relationship and you're not going to have a very fulfilling relationship. So it's inevitable or so conflict is, is inevitable. And, and then what we need to do is then learn how to manage it and learn or really learn how to repair that. That was where the game's at. 
that's where the game's at. You nailed it. Yep. Um, because I mean, the book getting to zero is how to, it's basically a translation of that is getting back to a good place. Yeah. How do we get back to a good place after we've had a difference, a snag, a silence after we've had some kind of conflict and that's the work and couples who do that well and families who do that well, create security in the system and security in the dyad. And you're actually becoming not only stronger together, you're becoming more resilient. And uh, it's actually safer because you're saying, yeah, that stuff that's kind of negative and uncomfortable, that's welcome here too. We're not going to put that away. That's actually part of part of being a family. That's part of being a, uh, a married couple is this uncomfortable stuff between us that doesn't always feel good. That's really normal. I just, you know, I'm here to normalize for people that when you feel upset with your partner or your kids and you raise your voice, that's normal. It's what are you going to do after to make sure that person feels safe again with you? Beautiful. So we can think about getting to zero as the opposite of being triggered at level 10. So yeah. 10, 10 would be you are, you are out of your mind triggered. And then zero is coming back to that safe uh, oh, you 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 had the the safe, secure, seen, and soothed place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. When I settle, my nervous system, my scared animal, I call it, that's kind of activated inside because I'm a social mammal, um, calms down. Right. I, I kind of like chill out, and you, your tone of voice, and how you look at me, and how you talk to me, all can help me. Actually, you know, I talk about how do we uh, regulate ourselves when we're upset. And then how do we regulate our partner when they're upset? How do we just be there for people, our kids when they're upset? That's also really valuable skills that, that we can learn. And most of us didn't. didn't oh my God. Way. Oh no, that that's, that's been the, boy, that's been the whole key for me. I, I really kind of started getting serious around therapy and emotional healing about a year and a half ago, or really at the start of the pandemic. And nice. One of the things that that just has has been such a revelation for me is that my outer relationships are just a reflection of my inner relationships. And if I can learn how to be comfortable with my own discomfort, with my own inner tension, with my with everything happening inside, then I can show up for my kids and my partner when they're triggered or uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that that nice. boy, I mean, that came that came at the right time. Well, we decided to move about a year ago, and uh, the first time that I remember reflecting on this is uh, my daughter was really upset about, well, at first she was excited to move, and then when it finally hit her, she was really upset. And the way that I grew up uh, is that, hey, you know, we, ha we have many different strategies. We can distract, like, hey, look over here. Uh, we can bribe. <laughs> And then if distraction yep. and bribing don't work, then discipline. I don't want to hear it again. If I hear it again, then, you know, we're going to take away whatever. And like yeah. I was going, I, like I was about to go down those, those like, you know, the first <laughs> I, was, I was about there. And then I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. What if I allow for her discomfort the, the same way that I'm learning to allow for my own discomfort. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was like, it, it, was, nice, it was a really, yep. really cool experience. Yeah, kids need that, right? They need, they need that kind of room to be able to go get mad, sad, hurt, scared, whatever. And parents, you know, I, I grew up in a similar situation where it was like, mostly it was just shut down. You know, mm -hmm. what are you yeah. crying about? I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> like, get over yeah, it, yeah, suck yeah, it up, yeah. come on. Yeah. 
and, yeah. and it was like scary. So it was scary to start to feel again, but man, it's freedom now. And my kids feel safe to, you know, feel stuff in the house. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, what, what, what I realized is of course, I mean, it, before the kids, it like, it was, it was me that uh, I came across this saying early on in uh, therapy, what we resist persists. And it was like, oh, well, you know, uh, me yeah. resisting all of these uncomfortable feelings, all this stuff, it's not making it go away, man. Yeah. <laughs> and no. so then to think about <laughs> yeah. this with my daughter, and it was like, oh, I, I can find ways to avoid or shut it down, as you said. But what what we resist persists is that 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 feeling isn't going to go anywhere. And so yeah exactly and i i similar i in my 20s i was emotionally unavailable i was like the classic emotionally unavailable male so every woman i dated because when they would get emotions emotional emotions and have needs and stuff and feelings it was very uncomfortable for me so i would kind of shut them down by pushing them away because i didn't have that capacity and when i finally got partnered with my wife and i was starting to work on myself i, I saw that oh the the work here is she's emotional the more capacity i have to be emotional over here mm. right the more i can hold space for her upset because mm. otherwise every woman i dated prior to my wife i was sort of shutting them down because i was not okay with my own emotions it all starts inside right <laughs> pretty much but but here's the thing like it's in relationship that we are able to see that the mirror gets held up to to what it is that we're not getting about ourselves. Oh man! Oh yes, I love it. I love it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, real life conflict. So you write that there are five basic conflicts uh, that couples have. So we have the surface level fights, the childhood projections, uh, security fights, value differences, and resentments. Um, First off, so I, I think these these five will be easily, I think, understandable just from their names, the surface level fights everybody knows. Uh, maybe if you could explain childhood projections and security fights. So sure. what is a fight or that that has to do with a childhood projection? What What does that look like? Yeah, well, a lot of the fights do start with some sort of surface argument. Let's say you and I are partnered and and you just have like a look on your face, right? And it looks like a surface thing and not now I'm upset and now we're kind of like arguing about something and it just started with the look on your face, right? It's like, what the heck just happened here? Well, if we look deeper, uh, we would see that this, I might be projecting, let's say you have this look that you go flat and you kind of look away from me when we're in conflict. Well, I grew up with a mother who went flat and looked away uh, uh, under stress, and that scared me as a little kid. So when you do that, look, it's similar, and it triggers that old memory in my body and my heart and my feelings that I feel like I'm right back in my childhood home. So I project my mom onto you. So this is, this is basic psychology 101, but it can be hard for people to grasp. But basically, you can, you know, I just asked the listener, Anytime you feel like you're in your family of origin with your current situation, chances are there's a projection going on somewhere. I wonder, is, it seems to me that those would be connected to particularly intense feelings. So is it the case that like the further up we get on the trigger scale, that the more likely we are to be in some childhood projection? That's a good question. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but it might be. Um, I'd have to think about that. I think it's just going on all the time, whether we're 
sort of in it or not and how how activated we are. It, yeah. it is true, though, that the more triggered we are and the higher up the number scale we go, the less cognitive functioning we have, the less, um, mm. the more inaccurate our memory is. Uh, we're not going to remember like, oh, that's not what I said. This is exactly what I said. People get into that kind of dynamic. It's like, no, no one knows what was said. And this is why we wish we had a tape recorder because our memory is incredibly flawed when we're activated. So our, our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex is starting to uh, shut down a bit and our emotional brain or the limbic system is coming on. And, and so this would naturally bring us back into a space of uh, childhood attachments and, uh, or, or attachment wounds. Would that be the case? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes um, if we're talking about attachment, that happened in the first couple of years of life. And sure, there was attachment bonding going on after that. But um, most of the the big, like the most critical time is in those first couple of years. So if we had a parent who was absent or drinking all the time or neglectful or abusive, man, we're going to have a pretty hard time in our adult relationships. So that's why these first couple of years as parents are so vital to create what I would call a secure attachment. And that's offering this experience of the child feeling safe, seen, soothed, supported, and challenged. And so that is related to the security fights. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um, so security fights can be the most common way people can understand this as if I'm in a relationship with you and you have one foot in, one foot out. Because you haven't, and we could be married and you still might have one foot in it, one foot out, and you're just not fully here. I, that creates insecurity in me. And so the security of our vibe together is naturally going to be insecure. So that's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is you could be in a 10-year marriage and if repairs are not happening after conflict, you're in an insecure relationship. Or if you have a partner who refuses to come to the table and own their part, you're, both of you are in an insecure relationship, guaranteed. All right, so we have these five basic conflict types. Is is it the case that, that some couples fight about one of these more than others, or are these relatively evenly distributed across fights in couples? Yeah, it's an important question. I don't I don't know, but I will I will say there all couples are going to experience these off and on for the rest of their partnership. <laughs> yeah. So even if, if, if one is more prominent, all five of these are going to come into your relationship. Yeah. And if they're not dealt with, you're just compounding everything and making it all much harder to deal with. You know, I, I sometimes will work with a couple or uh, a student and they've just have never dealt, you know, they've have, they just shoved it under the rug for decades. And now it's like, every little thing hurts. And it's like, okay, well, where do we start? It's like, well, let's start right now with the one that just happened. But now we have to go back with you and your person and clean up every single one of them if you want to be at zero. I mean, you mm. don't have to be because a lot of people can live at a five. It's yeah. shocking oh to my me. God. But, <laughs> you know, because we're all living with so much stress. Like human beings are, are kind of resilient and maybe in a negative way, kind of resilient that people will live in really shitty relationships and really horrible situations for a long time. You know, it's not good. When they when they come to you finally and they've been living like this for so long, what is what generally has been their big fear of, around fixing this? Yeah, there's three primary reasons why a person like this would avoid and um it's biology, history and discomfort. 
So biology is, again, we don't want to be left out, cast out, kicked out of the dyad or the herd. We don't want to live alone, die alone, etc. That's really bad for us. So we will do anything to keep the connection, including betray ourselves. Our history is we've had, we grew up in a, maybe a traumatic household or a household that just was silent and everybody went to their corners of the house and there was no quote, no conflict, but it was like also like no connection, no nourishment. That's another reason is because the history shows up in the present when we get in an argument. That's the projection stuff. And then discomfort. A lot of people honestly just are really don't like what they feel in their body, heart and mind when they get in conflict. It's really doesn't feel good. So they avoid that. And so they're avoiding, I think, for a lot of these reasons. And then the last one might be they have no idea how. Mm. Right. Yeah, right. Because right. we didn't learn. Oh. Well, now that you explain it like that, it's a uh Actually, it's a miracle that anybody gets help <laughs> because I mean, like <laughs> right? that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so we have a lot going against us here. Yeah. That like, yeah. I mean, we to, can successfully avoid this just fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, then we're not fulfilled. No, no. Um, oh, gosh. All right. So uh, before I leave the, the, the five basic types, I just want to repeat them again because I have one last question. So it's the surface level yep. fights, it's the childhood projections, it's the security fights, and then value differences and resentments. Is there one of these that is the hardest kind to repair? Ooh, I think um, I'll say two things there because uh, it's a really good question. Repair, if repair isn't happening in a partnership and it's gone on for years, that's going to be pretty hard unless the non-repairing person gets motivated. So it's almost impossible unless both people decide one day, let's do it differently and let's apply ourselves and learn how. And then value differences, like I've been, this has been coming up with COVID, which is families who didn't know that they had such a big difference around vaccines. (laughs) <laughs> and all of a sudden there's a pro-vaccine person and an anti-vaccine person married. And they oh, have wow. two kids who are now at the age where they could get a vaccine. And now they are now they have to deal with, well, I want to vaccinate our kids. I don't want to vaccinate our kids. That's really tough. Really tough. Especially if they're so fundamentally bound to their belief system, it's going to be pretty hard to deal with that. Have uh, you seen these couples? Yeah, I've only seen a couple. And... And it's the the work I realized I was pretty fast. I was like, okay, wow, this is like going nowhere because <laughs> they were just so uh. in their position. It's like, wow, good luck. Um, but the work at that point for me is, can you deeply understand each other's perspective more than you ever have and have compassion and and can you even op- open your heart to the way they see the world? And that that's very healing. And And couples that can do that, at the very least, they can not judge each other so intently and they can go, I understand why you believe what you believe. And I, and it makes sense to me. They can even validate the other person like that makes sense. Totally. And Mm. I I do, I'm going to do it differently. And I appreciate and respect your choice with your body and what you want to do. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I just learned over the past couple of months working with uh, a couple of relationship coaches on a different project validation like that. And my assumption on validation had been that it's to say, yes, I agree. I, you know, I'm like validating in my mind was, you know, I, I accept and agree with Mm -hmm. everything you just said. And I learned, no, it's actually saying, 
I understand what you're saying and it makes sense. And then listening until they feel fully understood was, uh, yeah, super powerful concept. Right on. Let's walk through conflict. Now, I can remember so many times in the past, just conflict either with my kids, conflict with my partner. And you write a lot about the nervous system. So conflict, it's not just up in our heads or just, you know, in, in some, uh, you know, conceptual idea space. It's actually happening in our bodies. And so I'm wondering if you can just un- unpack this a little bit, how, how, how conflict shows up in our bodies. Yeah. So, because we're social mammals, um, we have this thing Stephen Porges calls the social engagement system, where we feel safe enough to engage socially. And we're always on the lookout as social mammals for something that is uh, unsafe, dangerous, or life-threatening. Um, and we're, we're just scanning, not even consciously, we're just scanning, like you walk into a party or an airport or a hotel or something, your social mammal, your scared animal is just on the lookout for threats. And we're just wired this way more than we are to love and to connect actually. Apparently twice as we're wired twice as much for threat than for connection. Mm. Uh, So we're, we're these sensory beings that are always on the lookout below, usually below our awareness. And so when we get into, let's say again, a look on the face, a tone of voice, a text that doesn't get returned back on time, Um, that can send my nervous system into a place of activation where the sympathetic part of our nervous system uh, starts to, you know, kick in and I, my heart rate starts to increase um, and I start to mobilize to protect myself in some way. So this is essentially the fight or flight response and and we would be experiencing similar physical reactions if like a bear began to charge. Yeah, exactly. So this, this is a system that, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago was really good for us. And now it's still a good thing. We want it. We want our scared animal to come online when we need it to, but so often it's firing unnecessarily. You know, you could be on Instagram and something could, could threaten your, an old ex and they're the way they're partnered with someone else could just like send you into a, a whole reaction that would be similar to if you were seeing a bear cross the road, you know, or across the path in front of you. So that that's, what's challenging now is we're, we're dealing with a, very primitive system that fires fast and often is wrong. <laughs> and and then our job is like, how do we work with that? And uh, this is where we disconnect from center, from zero. If zero is like the place of good connection, we feel connected to ourselves and the other person. The moment we get threatened, no matter how big or small, we move away from zero and we move. Uh, I don't call it fight, flight, freeze, although that's what it is. I call it posture, collapse, seek, or avoid. We just do these things to protect ourselves. Yeah. So you write about those as the four disconnectors. And so we have entered into conflict where now our bodies are mobilized into this fight or flight response. And we're mobilized into these four disconnectors. You're right. So it's it's seek or avoid, posture or collapse. Um, seek and avoid. I think that that's uh, self-explanatory. I, I I I guess. But then the posture or collapse. Could could you unpack that? Yeah. Think of a person who raises their voice, who gets kind of big and moves toward someone else in a conflict. And I, I call it a porcupine. You start your quills mm. come out, and you're you're really starting to posture and get big as a way to protect yourself. Some of us do that, and some of us do the opposite, which is to get small. And that's the collapsing, like a hermit crab. We go mm, inward, we shut yes, down, yes. we get really still and really quiet. 
I'm now seeing this picture. We are triggered. The body is activated. And then we are in this seek or avoid uh, posture or collapse where we're mobilizing these four disconnectors. And then you write about the four connectors of feeling emotionally safe, seen, soothed, and supported. So, I mean, your book really is about how to get from the, you know, this mobilized four disconnector space to this emotionally safe, seen, soothed, and supported space. Getting from activated and then this posture collapse to safe and soothed. Is this really about doing the inner work that we were referring to before about, you know, learning about one's childhood stuff, uh, about projecting, learning how to uh, be with internal discomfort. Is it really about doing this deep internal work and that tips and tricks really aren't going to get the job done? Uh, that's, 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 that's what was coming up for me. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I'd say yes and. So if you want to get better at this conflict repair cycle, and learn to come back quicker, learn to own your part quicker, learn to help the other person chill out more. And so you can guys feel good again, which is zero. Then looking at yourself is, is going to be the accelerated path. Um, looking at your history, you know, some people are like, I had a great childhood. I don't know why this, per my partner is so triggering. Well, that just means you, you don't remember. <laughs> and it was so subtle that, uh, cause the past is always going to show up in the present, no matter what childhood you've had. So it's less about like, I have to go and like reevaluate my whole past. Uh, the good news, that's why I like kind of the book and my model is you don't really have to do a ton of that. It does help because it just makes you more self-aware and more agile under stress. So you know yourself and then you can educate your person that, hey, this is what, remember, I grew up in a family like this. Remember when I was a kid, this was really scary for me. So when you do this, it kind of hurts. It kind of sucks. So can you at least have some empathy over here? Uh, and we can kind of educate each other about how sensitive we are and how what works for us and what doesn't work for us. That That's only going to help. So the and part of, yes, inner work and this collaborative work together mm. where we're, we're mm. really trying to understand each other. Like, wow, you, you are wired like this. This is so doesn't make sense to me. Can you help me understand even more? And if we can bring a genuine curiosity about each other's nervous system, about what works and doesn't work, then again, we're starting to act like a team and it's gonna probably go better for us. decade ago, Audra and I received news no parent ever expects to hear. Your four-year-old son has brain cancer. In that hospital room in Orange County, California, we had our fair share of tears and despair. But we also vowed that we would use this to help our family thrive no matter what. A decade later, after starting a nonprofit that has served thousands of childhood cancer families, we're on a mission to bring all of the amazing researchers, doctors, therapists, and other experts we've worked with to all families everywhere. That's why we created The Family Thrive, an online platform and community of top health and wellness experts and parents like us who are looking to thrive against the odds. It has fresh daily expert articles and topics that matter to parents like us, 
like how to cook a superfood meal in under 20 minutes, or the latest sleep science that can boost our kids' mental health, or simple things we can do to thrive as parents. We have top credentialed experts breaking it all down into bite-sized chunks of actionable wisdom. And you know when they say it takes a village to raise a family? Well, this is our village, and it's filled with quick bite expert wellness information and conversations that are designed specifically for busy parents. And when you're ready to dive deeper, we also have group-based workshops written and led by PhD researchers, psychologists, and clinical dietitians. This village is all on your phone, at your fingertips, whenever you need it. Join for free today at thefamilythrive.com. So I'm attracted to this idea that you have in the book, the emotional discomfort threshold. And so going back to what we first start uh, started talking about, can I become more comfortable with all of the stuff going on inside, which then allows me to show up and be more comfortable with big, difficult emotions in my kids or my partner? Absolutely. Yep. What are some tools or some practices that increase our emotional discomfort threshold. Yeah, great. So meditation is a, is a huge one uh, that worked for me many years ago. And I, I created just a very simple meditation, uh, almost mindfulness exercise that anyone can do in under two minutes. And I call it the Nestor meditation. Yeah, which is in the book. Yep, and I yep. can walk, yeah, which is in the book. I can walk through super fast if you want me to. Oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah, so um, we can just do it right now. It's probably okay. the best way to teach it. And this yeah. is like a minute, two minutes. I'm totally game. So we can game. just close our eyes yeah. or go inside. And so let's just say a trigger just happened and you got a little bit of space from your partner or your kid and you're like kind of heated. So just check in and we're going to go down the this acronym, NEST, Nestor, and we're going to label things. So N is number. So you just, on a zero to 10 scale, what is your number right now? So you just pick a number. Hmm, I'm a, let's say I'm a three. Um, I'm a little upset, but I'm not above a five, so I, I can still think about this. So I'm gonna be a three. Great. So then we move on to the next letter, which is E, emotion. So we label our emotional experience: sad, mad, glad, afraid, scared, upset, triggered. You know, whatever it is, we just put a label on it. That's the emotion. And then sensation is something that's actually going on in your body: uh, hot, cold, sweat, tingling. Um, tension in my chest, a uh, little mild headache, uh, sore knee. Those are all sensations. And then T is thoughts. What are you thinking about right now? Well, I'm thinking about my partner and why, why they did that, what they did and my part, and it's just confusing. So that could be what you're thinking about. And then R is resource. Where do you just feel good and okay in your experience? It could be your toe, it could be your chest, your head. So where, where do you feel resourced? And just we just hang with that. And then if we want, we can, you know, stay another couple of minutes and ride the waves of specifically the sensation mm. because that's where the discomfort is. And this allows us to increase our discomfort threshold. Awesome. Wow. So going on this process, two to three m minutes. And then if I'm still activated, I then just stick with the sensations and I just ride these yep. sensations. Ride the sensations and and try to and this is this is more slightly more advanced meditation. But if you can put your awareness or your attention 
instead of on the breath, like most meditation does, mm-hmm. in and out through the nose or whatever, you actually put it on the most uncomfortable spot in your yes, body. Yes. And you find out if it's going to kill you. And usually you find out it's not. <laughs> it's not. And yes. it's just like a wave, like a surf. And, you, and you're kind of like a surfer and you're surfing, you're riding this wave until it starts to subside. And the vast majority of the time, if you can stay with it, it will decrease. Mm. And then you just increased your discomfort threshold. Absolutely. I love this. I love this. Yeah, I, I uh, developed a um, an emotional mindfulness practice almost a year ago when i had i had worked for for years actually doing health behavior change stuff with mindfulness based stress reduction and and the and i was finding at least working with parents and particularly uh with our work with childhood cancer parents which is which is uh where the family thrive came out of um you know mm-hmm. the, ba- the 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 straight normal mindfulness stuff might help a little bit, but parents were having a hard time getting connected to it and sticking with it. And when I started to learn about these more emotion focused practices, I was like, oh, this is this is where it's at. Like, can 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 we just go straight to where we're being triggered and can we open up mm-hmm. to it? Can we get more curious about it? Can we ask it questions? And this this has been so impactful yeah. for me. And we're now uh, using it uh, with our childhood cancer nonprofit. And uh, yeah, mm. I mean, it's it's such a powerful so cool. practice. As as you said, you know, when when you go towards your most difficult, painful emotion, and you see uh, it's not going to kill me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not going to kill me. It's going to be okay. And and again, like. I can also, I can be that for my children, right? Like if I can handle my own emotional experience and regulate myself, because mm-hmm. I'm the external regulator for children. Yes. So I can now hold the space or be present with their huge tantrums and upsets and tears and what anger and whatever, and not go into reactivity. Is there a uh, an aspect, one thing that I brought into this emotional uh, processing meditation is physical expression. Like after asking the questions and really getting to understand what is this triggered emotion, can we ask it to move through our bodies? Like how does it want to move? You know, is it a stretch or a deep breath? What do you think about bringing some of that work into the emotional discomfort threshold. Yeah, yeah, why not? I, I think anything that's going to help you get back to zero mm-hmm. and back in your center with you and the person or people you care most about, great. Awesome. All right, so I don't want to give you know away too much of the book. I really, this this is uh, an, an amazing book for anybody who cares about relationships. And um, so the title of the book is, is or the subtitle is, refers to high stake relationships and so i'm assuming that this that these tools can be used in any relationship like at at work or you know in any sort of context but for me uh, they just felt so powerful and so important um for partnerships and then the parent-child relationship as well. So I encourage listeners to uh, check out this book and check out your work. But uh, before we land this plane, I just have to ask about listen until they feel understood. So do you pronounce it Lufu? Lufu, yeah. <laughs> Lufu. So this, the, uh, the first time I heard about this, I interpreted it as 
listening until I feel like I understood them. <laughs> like, like that. And, I, and I was like, oh, I got it. Like, that's easy. I understand everybody. And then it was like, no, 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 no. Listen until they feel understood. Yeah. So can you say a that's few right. words? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the short story, how this got created for me was because I kept listening to my wife in a really stubborn way. And she'd say, I don't feel understood. And I'd say, well, I do understand you. I don't know what you're talking about. You just, you know, I repeat back and she's like, no, I don't feel understood. I'm like, yes, I do. And so that went on for years. And I was like, dude, this is getting you nowhere. Uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to put the, the lever actually with her. And I'm going to say, I'm not, I don't understand you until you let me know that you do feel understood by me. And that changed everything for me and us because I became a better listener that day. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I really, now I'm going to have to apply myself even more because a lot of the times she shuts me down. It's like, no, dude, you don't get it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let me try again. Or I need some space and I'll come back and try again later because right? I'm too upset. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I thought that my understanding was up to me and I spent almost my entire adult life in academia. So it's like, I decide when I, like, I have understood this now. I, I, I see how, uh-huh. how, how it is. And it's such a little, I mean, it's, it's a subtle twist, but it's a game changer to say, no, 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 it's not up to you. Like it's not, your understanding of this is up to this person to say, yes, now you got it. Yes. Now, now I I feel understood. Yeah. So Lufu is this, this thing we teach. And uh, if anyone comes to our events or practices, uh, it's like the practice. Like if you can, if you can get this, just this, if you skip every part of the book, but you get this and you actually do it for the rest of your life, your, your life will completely change Mm. and transform because you're going to be that person. Everybody wants to talk to because they all feel understood by you. Love it. I love it. So I, I have a few final questions here. So um, how, how has your thinking changed over the years? So how, well, wait, first, how, how long have you been a relationship expert? I mean, I don't really call myself that. I, I say I'm a student and a teacher uh, of relationships because I'm always learning, but I don't know, 10, 20 years, yeah, 15 years. So I imagine, I'm imagining that so there's a lot that has changed or you've come across different tools and skills or you've seen some things kind of work, but other things work even better. Are there a few things that stand out that, that you've learned along the way that, 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 that you've changed or that have changed you? Completely. Um, I think our understanding of the brain and neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology is, is completely, I don't know, just blown up and secure attachment. So I'd say, let, let me say a couple things just to make this practical. So one thing is when couples get triggered and go to different parts of the house and just say, I'll handle myself, you handle yourself, and let's come back when we're better. That is a good skill for all couples to learn, but it's not the finish line. And so my wife and I tried that and did that for years, but we kept, it was inefficient and it, the timing was off and it just something about it wasn't quite clicking. So we learned more interactive regulation. How do we stay in the room? and help each other's nervous system because it's actually faster, it's more efficient, and we can get back to zero quicker. And so that that was a big development um, over the course of our marriage. We've been married 14 years now. So that was huge. Jace, can I ask something about that real quick? I, I th- you know, I've, I've heard of this strategy of, you know, the cooling down and, and, you know, going to separate parts of the house or taking a walk. And it has always struck me as, as like uh, something just doesn't click for me. And what is 
what is coming up now is that it's a really good way of avoiding the most important thing. Uh, it, whatever is is coming up in this conflict, it seems like it's a good way to avoid it because then you can come back together. You're both calmer and you can start to kind of patch up the more surface level stuff, but you don't have yeah. to deal with maybe something big that's underneath. Yeah, that's right. And then let me let me just say a, another layer of this in the parenting space, which is, you know, the, the timeout is the classic understandable move a lot of parents make when their kid is, you know, really upset and the parents upset. It's like, you need to go to your room. That's right. You know, and the the problem with that approach now that we know about more about attachment science and the nervous system is when you teach a kid over and over to go deal with this by themselves, they learn that relationships are not reliable and that you can't get back to a good place with another person. You have to do that by yourself. So you're creating an adult who will one day not value relationships and will go to drugs and alcohol, their phones, uh, screens, porn, you, you name it, to get regulated, mm. to get back to a good place. And they will not rely on relationships. And that's a bummer. Um, and I, I, I see those adults and I work with those people all the time and they struggle because they grew up in families like this where it was go to your room. You know, so, so there's something way more efficient and powerful about relying on relationships to get back to a good place. Oh, wow. That, yeah, that, that hits me. I, I certainly grew up in a household that used those strategies. And one of the things coming up is a sense of big emotions are unsafe. And just, 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 right. just, they're, they're unsafe. They're going to get you sent to your room. They're going to get you, um, you know, ignored or they are going to cause a loss of attachment. Mm -hmm. So then in adulthood, big, big emotions are just, just, you know, just cram, cram those things yeah. down there as much as you can and avoid them as much as possible. Because when they come up, you have no tools. Right. You're traveling now off, off the map. <laughs> yeah. And then you're left to fend for yourself and you, you can't, you're not thinking like, oh, I need to actually ask for help from my partner or rely on my partner, even if they're triggering me. You don't, it doesn't even cross your mind because you're like, no, this is up to me. Yeah. And again, it's not ideal from a partnership kind of perspective. Mm, I love it. Yeah, that that was I I just I just think back to uh, how lucky I I am th that uh, I had been doing some of this work before we made this move cuz there were just a couple of like really big emotional moments that I know I know I would have shut down. Like I know without a doubt I would have found a way to shut them down. And just to stick with them. And so now just having this conversation with you, I'm feeling into a gratitude around my kids being safe with big emotions, you know, with, with mm -hmm. just yeah. like, and we are going to be here for them and we're going to talk about it. Nice. So I feel like you had a couple of other things that, that had changed for you. So there was this biology mm -hmm. aspect. I, again, secure attachment, I would say that it's uh, what we now know is that if we can behave in a way that offers what I call relational needs to our children, for example, and an adult partner, by giving them the feeling of they feel emotionally safe, they feel seen and known and understood by us, and they feel soothed, meaning we repair conflicts when they happen every time, not once in a while, but every time. And we support them and we challenge them because we believe them and we have boundaries, right? 
No, you don't get that cookie. It's 10 o'clock at night. No, you need to go to bed. No, you're going to school even though you don't want to. Kind of boundaries. We're creating security. And those kids, uh, the research shows, and I, I didn't learn this in graduate school, but studying Dan Siegel and so many other people, we now know that kids who are securely attached in environments, in their home environments, grow up and they're doing better in every area of life. They're holding down jobs longer. They're getting jobs better. They're getting better grades. They're getting into better colleges. Yeah. They're having healthier adult relationships. The list goes on. Less addictions, less mental health problems, on and on and on. So that's exciting. I'm like, wow, that, I, I would think that would motivate the hell out of so many parents to go, whoa, I need to figure this out. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, it's changing the world. You you know, you you as a parent are part of the solution. You are producing children <laughs> who are going to be healthy, well-adjusted members of this world doing good things. Yeah. Like it, it, yeah, it's totally like, it's even bigger than you. Yeah. Bigger than us. Yeah. Was there one other thing? No, but I, I want to add one more thing, which is what secure attachment isn't because, because I live in Boulder and a lot of people think secure attachment is just holding your kid a long time or putting them in the ergo or co-sleeping with them. Uh, while that might look like secure attachment, that's often coming from an anxious parent who doesn't want to mess up their kids. Uh, so that's a very big difference. Like if you're like, oh, I don't want to mess up my kids, so I'm going to hold them all the time or every time they cry, I'm going to give them something or anytime they struggle, I'm going to like rescue them and like bail them out of their pain and oh my gosh. And like that's, no, 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 that's not remotely secure attachment. So I call that just over parenting and over attachment parenting and it's not actually it's going in the wrong direction right we did not evolve like that uh have have you come across the book right. hunt gather parent i've heard of it i have not read it is it good <laughs> oh, that's amazing yes because she travels yeah cool. yeah she uh so she's an npr science correspondent and she uh, has uh, at the start of the book i think a four-year-old and she travels to alaska to mexico and africa to visit indigenous communities to see how they parent there and right. it's basically i mean it is almost everything that we're doing in the modern world just just do the opposite <laughs> yeah it's probably pretty hands off oh my god yeah. it's well it's, we're so i mean it sucks because like, like the like that's the problem with like all the research now is parents can get so bound up like that they're going to just mess it just do this terrible job and so they over function yeah. they just go into overdoing it mode oh man so the final question jason is what is a new challenging thing that you're working on in your own personal growth hmm uh well there's a couple things um i'm always working on my psychology around expansion and like touching more lives and earning more money and like there's just ways in which I get tied up in knots there sometimes. So that's, that's a layer. And then my wife and I, we, we just went through, you know, thanks to COVID kind of pushing an issue to the surface, like it did for so many of married couples. Uh, we just got really honest about some of our repair and process and got more efficient. And just, I feel like we just recently have kind of crossed through a, another cool threshold. So we've been at it working pretty hard on how do we do this even better? Mm. Um, I love it for ourselves, for our kids. And yeah, so I'm, I feel like we're always working on something. Yeah, the work never stops. So we have three yeah. last questions we ask every guest, just rapid fire. If you could put yeah. a big post it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, what would that post it note say? Become more self aware. 
become more self-aware. And what is a quote lately that has changed the way you think or feel? Maya Angelou's quote, she says something like, have enough courage to trust love one more time. Always one more time. Mm, Beautiful. Beautiful. And our final question, especially for parents whose kids are toddler age, uh, you know, can be a grueling grind on days. So we like to end by celebrating things that we love about kids. So Jason, what do you love about kids? Oh my God. Just about everything. (laughs) Um, I love kids, uh, imaginations, um, their creativity, their play, their joy. And there's, they're like zeal and curiosity for life. It's just like so insatiable. It's unbelievably inspiring to me. Yeah. It's inspiring and infectious. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Jason, thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Uh, We would love to have you back sometime. Uh, Your wisdom and insights are just super powerful, super impactful. And so if people want to check out your work and follow you, you're on all the socials. Yep. At Jason Gaddis, uh, Jason with a Y, -Y J-A-Y-S-O-N, G-A-D-D-I-S on Instagram, for example. And getting to zero book.com is probably a fun way for anyone listening to go take a conflict quiz to see what your conflict style is to find out more about the book. If you want to get the first chapter, if you're not ready to buy it, that's probably the best place to check out that. And there's links there for our podcast, the Relationship School podcast, and so much more. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate this, man. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. Honor to be here. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents, so let's spread the love.